0: So lovely and quiet in here tonight. Thank you for your practice. It really um, permeates this room. It's very beautiful. Tonight's talk is on impermanence and equanimity leading to freedom. One time, a student of Suzuki Roshi said to him, you know, I'm kind of confused by all these different teachings and all. Could you just sum it up for me? And Suzuki Roshi said, everything changes. That was it. That's all he said. Everything changes. This truth of everything changing or impermanence or... In Pali, the word is anicca, has far-reaching implications about our happiness in this world. And the Buddha took this truth, which seems fairly obvious. Everything changes. It, you know, At first glance, it might not seem so profound. You may even think to yourself, well, everybody knows that. And if you ask the average untrained worldling, as the Buddha referred to people who didn't practice, (laughs) if you ask them, do things change, they'll probably say yes. I even tried this once. Asked a bunch of people, and they said yes. And then I continued. I said, well, does everything change? And actually, this question, I got a variety of answers Some people insisted that there are some things that don't change. And some people um, agreed that everything changes. And one person said that 95% of things change. (laughs) (laughs) And then a few people, the second question, they just kind of looked at me like, what are you talking about? So at first glance, this profound truth that everything changes might not seem so profound. But the Buddha took this truth and he carried it through all the way to the end, what it implies about life and how we live life and happiness and suffering. So he carried it through all the way to the end, to the understanding of complete harmony with the way life is, freedom. Freedom. And the Buddha taught that understanding this truth deeply is what frees us. That understanding Anicca is our only hope for abiding happiness in this world. I remember the first time that I heard this truth. It was in my eighth grade science class. And I remember the moment the teacher said... He said, "Um, the only thing constant is change. Change is the only thing that doesn't change. And I I was standing up next to some test tubes, I remember. I don't remember the teacher's name or anything that he looks like, but I remember being struck by this as uh, some deep truth. I recognized immediately that this was an important and deep truth. And what I didn't know at that time was that 2,500 years earlier, the Buddha had taught this same truth as our doorway to freedom and understanding. So Nietzsche said to be the most important thing that we can understand about life. And really, that's all we're trying to do here in practice is we're trying to understand change we're trying to understand how we relate to change how we suffer and how we can find happiness and freedom, liberation in the midst of change, that's it We suffer in life because we don't understand change and we struggle against life as it is. So we fight against reality. And if it's a fight against reality, reality is going to win every time. Musong, a teacher at the Buddhist Center, the Center for Buddhist Studies, the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, he said, the existentially painful human condition is a case of misperception on the part of the perceiver and leads to clinging to things that basically have the nature of impermanence. The cure then is to find the corrective lens through which to perceive the world without distortion. So that's our difficulty with change. When we don't understand it, we cling to things that change and we suffer. Meditation is the corrective lens with which we perceive the world without distortion. So meditation is the corrective lens that helps us to see life as it is, to move from ignorance to understanding. The Buddha said, Sabe Sankara Anicca. The entire universe is fluid. Everything in conditioned reality, everything is in a constant state of flux. Nothing in this world escapes this truth. And in meditation, we contact our own experience of mind and body to see the truth of this reality for ourselves. So even just think about your last sitting. What happened? A pretty constant process of change, I am assuming. Perhaps if you're doing some concentration practice, there can be the perception of some semblance of sameness. But when you turn concentration to investigating life, what you'll see is constant change. The breath. Each breath, constant change. Sensations changing as we breathe in and breathe out. A knee pain. If we look closely, swirling, changing, pulsing, moving sensations. I am just looking at the day. Where's lunch? I remember my first long retreat. I spent all morning looking forward to lunch. So I think about lunch, look forward to lunch, sit, eat lunch. And afterwards, I would just sit there and I'd go, wow, it's gone. (laughs) And I felt such a letdown. (laughs) I was like, oh, I guess lunch isn't going to do it. (laughs) And then the next day, I would do the same thing. (laughs) We humans are a little slow. (laughs) On the physical level, my body here is disintegrating, changing, moment by moment. They say that all of our cells, and there's a lot of them, are replaced every seven years. Galaxies are born and die, as Greg talked about last night. Molecules are in a constant state of agitation. Rocks crumble. Everything is in actuality a process, a verb, an event, a fluidity. The Pali translation of this word anicca can also be not enduring. So it captures the kind of fleeting quality of life everything arising and passing away, not enduring. Ajahn Chah, the famous uh, Thai master, sometimes translates anicca as uncertainty. Catches the flavor of instability, of change, that you can't count on anything, that life flows on and on. So why don't we really understand impermanence, Anicca? There's a couple factors. One is um, our old friend delusion or denial. We humans find it quite difficult to accept this truth about life. We're not always too excited (laughs) about the fact that everything changes and is therefore unreliable for our source of permanent happiness. It can bring up a lot of fear. Ajahn Chah says in Food for the Heart, people say Ajahn Chah only talks about not certain. They get fed up with hearing this and they run away from me. We went to listen to Ajahn Chah teach, but all he talked about was not certain. They can't bear to hear the same old thing anymore, so they leave. I guess they are going to look for some place where things will be certain, but they'll be back. <laughs> if we announce that we're going to do Dharma talk on uncertainty to the general public, I'm not sure how many people would come. <laughs> Another reason we miss seeing the deeper truth of impermanence, and Greg mentioned this last night, is that we live on the surface of life. We live in a world of concepts, so we don't get close enough sometimes to really see this constant change. So we live in our ideas about life rather than in the experience of what's actually happening. And the problem with concepts is they disregard a lot of information in order to be useful. For example, if I come up to a door, it's a good idea that I know that it's a door and that I don't have to figure out each time what a door is and how they work. So concepts are useful. We're not saying that they're not useful. But they can hide the truth. So if I have the concept of pain in the knee, and I don't look more deeply, it can seem like it's a rather solid thing. If I have the concept of breath without looking more deeply, I won't see the constant changing nature of breath. So when we meditate, we get up close so that we can see What's really happening? So a headache. What's a headache really? We get up close and we see that what may seem like one solid, not changing sensation is actually pulsing, moving, changing. And what about this thing we call ourself? That's a nice concept that we can... Uh, Attach permanence to and not understand impermanence. What is self when we sit down and look at it? Changing sensations, thoughts, sense experiences, emotions rolling on and on. Where's the permanence? Where's something that you can grab in your experience and say that this is my permanent self? So this is why in meditation we put so much emphasis on our direct experiences so that we can see change. That we can get past the fixed level of concept and see what's really happening. As I said, when we first uh, look more deeply into this truth of change, we may begin to understand how vulnerable we are in this world. And we may not be exactly happy about that. And we'll start to understand how we try to control life in order not to experience that vulnerability and how we struggle to find something that will provide enduring happiness In my first three-month course here, I went through a period of about a month where I was really um, connecting with kind of the fact that change was ceaseless. And I didn't really understand that that was what was happening. But I knew that I wasn't very happy a lot of the time. I experienced a lot of fear during that month. And what my mind did was kept looking or something that was going to make me happy. That was the theme for like a month. I kept trying out all these different scenarios that was going to work and make me happy in life. I was 24 years old and uh, had been rather nomadic up to that point. So I, was, I thought, you know, perhaps, well, I really liked meditating. So I thought perhaps if I got a little cabin in the mountains. And just kind of live there by myself, then I'd be happy. And then I would realize, huh, maybe I'm gonna get lonely. And then I'd feel fear. And then I'd think, well, maybe I should have some kids. That would be like a good way to be happy. And then I'd think, oh my God, all that responsibility. That's not gonna work. (laughs) And then I'd feel fear. And then i think, well, maybe I'll find a nice spiritual community like IMS where I can live and be around a lot of other spiritual people. That would be great. And then I thought, oh, my God, they'll drive me nuts. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was fear. And this went on for a month. It was just like, what in this world is going to do it? It's going to make me happy. And all the while, I was just seeing ceaseless change, change. I would wake up in the morning, and every morning my first experience was fear. So then, um, finally, after this went on for a long time, and I was just with the process, you know, just kept going. That's what you do when meditation's hard. You just keep going. I finally went into my teacher, and I said, it doesn't look like there's anything in this world that's going to make me permanently happy. And uh, she said, yeah. Yeah and i said so i guess the job is just learning how to relate to each moment that that's where i can find what i'm looking for and she said yeah and that afternoon the fear went away and peace started to become stronger in my practice Because I realized that due to the truth of change, that there wasn't anything that was going to do it, that was going to make me happy. But there was a way to work with that, and that's to look at the moment-to-moment experience and how I'm relating to it. That can bring us happiness and peace. Charlotte Joko Beck says one of my favorite quotes she says practice has to be a process of endless disappointment we have to see that everything we demand and even get eventually disappoints us this is our this discovery is our teacher this discovery points us in the right direction to look for freedom So we're sitting here, and we're exploring how we relate to change. And sometimes in life, it's obviously big events. I love to watch my mind and how it reacts when things change, such as I lose my favorite earring, or the flight gets canceled, or the computer freezes. We can call it computers our Nietzsche teachers. <laughs> It's like, it's so interesting to watch what the mind does when these things happen. The first thing I almost always notice is denial. It's like some part of the brain goes, this is not happening. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And it's like the brain kind of knows that it's happening, but it's like, no, this is not happening. No, I didn't just lose all my information on the computer. No, the flight is not canceled. (laughs) And so that, and then, and then after a while, the mind starts like going, "Oh, okay, it is happening." And then, if we're not like mindful, um, we get reactive. Deep conditioning. The earring, the lost earring. There'll be the wanting, the holding, trying to hold on somehow to the earring that's lost. Or if it's unpleasant, there'll be this wanting to push it away, right? So if it's pleasant, whatever the change is, if it's pleasant, we'll try to hold on. And if it's unpleasant, we'll try to push away. So we have these like three favorite control strategies for dealing with change. They're grasping, aversion, and delusion, or denial. So we'll try to use one of them. This is kind of how we're deeply conditioned as human beings. doesn't work so well. There's not a lot of freedom in this scenario. We live in a state of restlessness and reactivity if we haven't, if we don't learn how to make peace with change. It may appear to work for a while. You know, we might be able to keep things kind of the same for a while. But ultimately it doesn't work. I think sometimes we're a little bit like rats in experiments. They have these experiments where rats like if they push a lever, they get food, and if they only if they only get food one in ten times and they get shocked like the other times, they'll still push the lever It's like they say that intermittent satisfaction like kind of conditions us to <laughs> to um uh keep trying. I think we're a little bit like that with as humans you know we have this illusion that we can control things through aversion through attachment, and every once in a while it like looks like it works, and so then. We keep trying. But hopefully, we're going to do better than the rats. That's the plan. (laughs) So sometimes we watch change with like the big things that don't go the way we want, or that change, or that we can't hold on to. And then sometimes in our practice, we get really interested in watching this moment by moment, watching our momentary experience and how we're relating to it, is there attachment, is there aversion, is there acceptance? Acceptance with this flow of change, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, flowing, flowing. And so it can get, we, can, we can have practice where we don't even care what the, the object of our awareness is. It doesn't matter what we're interested in is how the mind is relating to it. Is there clinging or is there freedom? So the Buddha taught that understanding Anicca is a doorway to freedom. Not understanding Anicca is what causes suffering. He says in chapter 20 of the Dhammapada, everything changes, nothing stays the same. Having gained this awareness, one is freed from suffering. This is the way of purification. All conditioned things are subject to change. Having fully learned this insight, one is freed from suffering. This is the way of purification. So this isn't meant to be a sad talk. This is meant to be I talk um, about uh, freedom and what we can learn from being with change. And it seems that we have to go through it, you know. We have to go through and deeply into the nature of change to understand it. I teach a um, mindfulness group at Mount Holyoke College, about an hour from here, and one time I was talking with the young women there. We were talking about anicca and I said, you know, so impermanent, so what? You know, what, what does, why do we really care about this? And one of the young women said, well, this is pretty much the way it is, and if you have issues with it, you need to deal with them. Oh. <laughs> And I, I just love that. It was <laughs> such a great way of putting it. <laughs> Most of us have issues with this that <laughs> we need to deal with. When we understand and accept change, when we accept this inevitable flow of life, we find deeper and deeper levels of peace. Trungpa Rinpoche says, you do not have to struggle to be free. The absence of struggle is freedom. So when we understand Anicca deeply, we um, struggle less and less with life and then we understand freedom. We have to work it through, though. <laughs> we have to um, understand how we react to anicca and live it through. The other day or a few months ago, I bought an orchid plant at an orchid show, and I'd always kind of wanted an orchid, so I was really excited about this orchid. Had some really like delicate uh, yellow flowers. Small little plant, but it was really pretty. So I brought it home and um, put it on the bureau or on the um, shelf. And uh, we have a couple of kittens that, uh, well, they're cats now, but they still act like kittens <laughs> a couple years old. Well, they got very excited also <laughs> about the orchid and uh, investigating the orchid. So it became this... Um, Dance, how I was going to protect the orchid and still have the orchid out where I could see it and not have the cats eat it or play with the delicate little flowers that went up. They liked to play with them and watch how they moved. And it was such an interesting um, exploration of attachment. You know, I really liked my orchid plant and I wanted it um, to stay alive and healthy and everything. And so uh, this went on for a few months. The cat's occasionally getting the orchid, but mostly me finding ways to protect the orchid. Like I put it in a room where I could close the door and things like this. So finally, um, the orchid died. (laughs) And it was kind of a relief. (laughs) 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 In the meantime, I was really interested in kind of like how I was relating to this whole dance, you know, the the attachment to the orchid and then the orchid dying. There's a story from um, another Ajahn Chah story. He talks about, he says, The previous Sangha Raja, the supreme patriarch of the monastic order, once went on a tour of China where someone offered him a beautiful teacup. It was unlike anything he'd ever seen. He thought, oh, the people here have real faith in me to offer me this beautiful teacup. And as soon as the teacup was in his hand, immediately he was suffering. Where should I put it? Where is safe to keep it? He couldn't stop worrying it would break. Before he had that teacup, he was fine. Once he had it, he wanted to show it off to the people back in Thailand. He put it in his bag and kept telling everyone to watch out that the teacup didn't get broken. Hey, careful, please. Everywhere he was watching out for it, he had nothing but suffering. Before the suffering didn't exist, but now there was the heaviness of having the teacup. So he boarded his plane back to Thailand. When he arrived, he warned the novices, Be careful, don't let the teacup break. You lay people, watch out. There's something fragile here. This went on all the time, suffering because of the attachment to the cup. Finally, one day, a long time later, a novice picked it up, and it slipped from his hand and broke. What relief the sangaraja felt! Ah, I am free! Suffering all these years. <laughs> This is life, constant loss, everything arising, passing away, together, broken. So what do we do about that? Sometimes we think that practice is trying to teach us to detach. Sometimes we'll hear that we want to cultivate detachment from the world. What does that mean? So if there's constant loss and we detach, deconnect, disconnect, we don't get hurt, right? But I don't think that practice is to cultivate detachment. I think it's cultivate non-attachment, but that's different. Because with non-attachment, we can still be connected. We still connect with this world. We still love this world even knowing that it'll change. Pablo Neruda, one of my favorite poets, says, We, the mortals, touch the metals, the wind, the ocean shores, the stones, knowing they will go on on inert or burning. And I was discovering, naming all these things. It was my destiny to love and say goodbye. Goodbye. Can we experience life as loving and saying goodbye at the same time? This is harder than detachment. Can we connect deeply with life, this flow of ever-changing life without controlling? Connecting so deeply until there isn't even an I that's separate anymore from this flow of life. Also, equanimity isn't some lofty ideal, this equanimity with change, this peace with change. It's not some lofty ideal we take and try to plaster on top of our experience another misunderstanding. It's not feigned indifference, I'm above all that. That masquerades as equanimity. I think developing this peace with change, this peace that we could call equanimity too, is about really owning our experience and engaging with it fully. It's nitty gritty. We start exactly where we are with our attachment to the orchid plant. Last year, I had this experience i think um that us Dharma teachers who travel, I think our greatest equanimity teacher these days are um airports and um airplane flights <laughs> so last year I went on a trip about a sixteen day trip um, and I was ready to come home and uh I got in a traffic jam at the airport, on my way to the airport, but I was like 50 minutes before my flight, so everything seemed okay and looked like I was probably going to get home that day, and I was really happy because I was tired. I'd been gone for 16 days. Well, to make a long story short, they wouldn't let me get on the plane due to 45-minute check-in period for bags, and I checked in at 44 minutes. So (laughs) they wouldn't let me on the plane. Actually, the plane was full, but that's a whole other story. But (laughs) I was really unhappy. I was very unhappy. I so wanted to be home. I was tired. And so there were tears like running down my, my cheeks. I just wanted to go home. And I was really interested in this process. One little voice kind of said in my mind, it said, Rebecca, you're a Dharma teacher you've been practicing for 23 years. You should be doing a lot better than this. <laughs> and this other voice said, well, I'm not. <laughs> and I decided to side with the I'm not voice. <laughs> and so I just sat there, you know, I was kind of crying, and nobody was paying attention to me. It's an airport. <laughs> and... um and so I kept checking in. It was like, Am I equanimous yet? And it was like, No. <laughs> All right, crying, crying. Am I equanimous yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> Angry. <laughs> and what was so liberating about this experience was that I was really okay with not being equanimous. So, this is the advanced teachings on equanimity. It's like when you can be equanimous about not being equanimous, I think you're doing really well. And so I kept checking, and then eventually um, uh, I started to notice that my experience was changing a little bit. I was getting more accepting of the reality that I was not going to make it, oh, I didn't tell you this part, it, was mean. it meant I wasn't going to get home that day. It was the last flight out to cross the country, so I knew that it meant I had to stay in Portland that night, and I didn't have anywhere to stay, so... Um, I started, I just noticed that, okay, it got a little calmer in there. It's like, oh, okay, and then finally it was like, well, I think I'm ready to start thinking about what I'm going to do tonight. You know, it was like, okay, enough equanimity for that, and it wound up being fine. I stayed with an old student, and uh, we had uh, smoked salmon on crackers in our garden for dinner. It was very nice. Um, so equanimity about... Non-equanimity. <laughs> so you can see that if we kind of impose equanimity on ourselves, that that's kind of, um, it's not real to start out with, and it's a little bit uh, violent against ourselves. So with this practice, we just start with wherever we're at, right there something changes, we're not happy, we just connect with that. And then we let the awareness and the mindfulness teach us, and we learn. It's like like learning non-resistance to what is. That's another way we can say that we work with... uh, change, and each is learning non-resistance <laughs> to what is, and this non-resistance is utterly relaxing and so sweet. There's a teacher I love very much named Darlene Cohen, a Zen teacher from California. I've never met her, but I've read a bunch of her stuff, and... Uh, This is a beautiful um, expression of that non-resistance. She got ovarian cancer, and uh, this is what she wrote. I had six treatments of chemotherapy. I was put in the hospital for the first two-day rounds so they could monitor me. They shot my belly full of toxic drugs until I labored just to take an air. I couldn't lie down or sit with that enormous belly on top of me. I could only walk. For hours, I staggered up and down the hospital corridors, pushing the IV stand ahead of me and occasionally stumbling with exhaustion against the wall. I went home on the third day and chemo hell continued. I couldn't breathe deeply, eat or drink. I lived in a primal animal realm in which I was a creature without thought patterns or discriminant judgment, experiencing sensations and emotions that passed through in a constant stream. For twelve days I lay on my couch, laboriously breathing in and out, enveloped in a gestalt of pain and fear. Yet simultaneous to that misery was the most beautiful autumn I'd ever seen in my life, happening right outside my room in a grove of maples and redwoods. The slanting light, characteristic of Northern California autumns, dramatically showcased the reds, golds, apricots, and browns of the evolving plants. As dawn broke each morning sunbeams penetrated the window along my eastern wall progressively highlighting the dark wood of my chair and table the threads of my blanket the rug reds and blues of my rug and my waiting body at such ecstatic times i felt as if i were being lifted and carried right through the windows onto the air on a heavy linen sheet borne by sweet-faced angels that used to illustrate the turn-of-the-century hymn sheets. My world was full, lush, and compelling. When I had my hip replaced two decades ago, life before and after the surgery was completely different. Life before was one flowing whole, ho- and until I healed, life after surgery felt mismatched. This time, however, there was no rent in the fabric of my life. The days before the tumor surgery and the days after continues Continue to be all of a piece. I see students, I write lectures, I get cut open, I eat jello, I receive visitors, I feel sick as a barfing dog, I pace the corridors, I ride home with the passenger seat all the way down, and so on. To the experience of golden apricot colors, helplessness, dread, and being born on a sheet carried by angels. such non-resistance to life as it flows and changes, so beautiful, poignant and sweet. So to develop... um, develop this peace and this non-resistance we actually have to study how we resist so we study how we react to change, to pleasant unpleasant, neutral one of my greatest teachers of equanimity and peace with change has also been health issues, they're really great for Learning because um, you can't argue with them. <laughs> Over the years, I've worked with uh, various challenging health issues, but most of them in the category of um, a too-sensitive body in a too-toxic world. And um, I'm actually much healthier these days, but uh, a number of years ago I actually had, um, I struggled a lot, and I would have what I called good days and, and what I would call bad days. So I'd have days when I had more energy and felt, quote-unquote, more normal. And then I'd have days where um, I, I would feel like my whole body was buzzing or a lot of fatigue or other, other problems. And so I, I had to get interested in how I was relating to this constant change, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant. And there's a trick I learned. And what I learned is that um, we have to get interested in how we relate to both the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs. We're often motivated to um, really understand when we're suffering, but we're not so motivated to understand when we're feeling good and everything's pleasant. But I found that if I couldn't understand how I was relating when it was pleasant. So if I would grasp on the good days and try to hold on, that I was conditioning my mind to react. And then on the difficult days, I would also, I would be attached, thinking that it was going to last forever, that it wasn't going to change. <laughs> and so I would learn on the, on the good days, I would say to myself, actually, this isn't going to last. This will change. And it helped me learn not to grasp. I could still enjoy the good days, but I wouldn't grasp. And then, when the difficult days came and it was harder, I would say, "This isn't going to last." And I could believe it because I'd also cultivated it on the other side. Sometimes we just want to cultivate it when it's hard. This won't last, right? But if we, if we. Uh, Cultivate believing in permanence when it's pleasant. It's going to be harder to remember when it's unpleasant. So we want to get interested in how we relate both to pleasant experiences, those great sittings, <laughs> good lunch. How, how are we holding it? Are we holding it lightly, knowing that it'll change? That leads to peace. And then when it's difficult, are we holding it lightly, knowing it'll change? That leads to peace. Non-resistance to what's happening, resistance to what's happening, resistance to change, non-resistance to change, exploring, exploring both. And those things that challenge us, those are our great teachers, the lawnmower, other yogis, anything, anything that challenges how we think things should be, anything that challenges our sense of control. These are our teachers. A number of years ago, um, I decided that, uh, practice in the United States was getting a little easy. We have it pretty good here. I mean, we really do. (laughs) And so, uh, I decided that I wanted um, more difficult circumstances for practice in order to kind of stretch what I, um, how much I was willing to let go of control. So I decided to go to Burma. And um, so I went to this monastery uh, where Michelle and I now teach Cheswa in northern Burma. And it's really great. It was so great to practice there because... Um, we don't have the same kind of illusion of control that we have here. And sound is one of, like, my great teachers. I um, I can easily be averse to uh, sounds. And so when we went to Burma, they when they have, like, parties there, they rent these big loudspeakers. They put them on trucks because uh, people don't own, like, stereos. So they'll r- rent these big um, loudspeakers speakers on trucks. And so our monastery was like above the town. So anytime anybody wanted to have a little party or something, we would get all this music. And it was great because you never knew when it was going to happen. I do believe that there was some, maybe a rule between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. you couldn't have it. Uh, Because I think that's what it was. But like if there was a big party or something, often it would start at 4 a.m. in the morning. Because like they would get up and go for the you know to maybe bring food to the monks for breakfast and stuff like that so they start really early. <laughs> and uh you know, we'd be sitting in the hall and all of a sudden it'd be like country western music but with Burmese words cuz they're not allowed to have English words in their music. They they so they take our tunes and they put you know put Burmese in. It's great. And um but what was really great was it was such a lovely teacher about control, non-control, resistance, non-resistance. It's great too, like Ulakana would come to do talks. He'd say he was going to come for talk. And we never could be actually sure that he would show up or what time he would show up. <laughs> it would be like, you know, we'd come to the hall and sometimes we'd just sit and wait. How was it the other night when Michelle was four minutes late? (laughs) It's great to practice just um, seeing how much we expect things to be a certain way and then what's it like when they change. Sometimes with the music, um, I had a friend in a kuti little hut near me, so sometimes when the music would come on, we'd dance a little bit. (laughs) Sometimes we'd have like raggae days or um, even hip hop days. They'd have hip hop music in Burmese. It was great. Burma's a great place to practice. But you don't have to go there, there's plenty to do here, too. So, seeing in our practice, seeing for ourselves this constant flow of change, one moment pleasant, another moment unpleasant. How do we relate? How can we find peace? This is our exploration. Ajahn Chah also said that everything he'd learned in 40 years that he's been a monk could be summed up as change. Everything arises and everything passes away. Now you don't have to believe everything we tell you. You can doubt this. Doubt's great. You should doubt everything. Because then when you doubt it, you get to look for yourself. So we can use our doubts, we can use our questions to really motivate us to look in our own experience. Is this true? Is it true what these people up here are telling us? Is it true? So that's our investigation is to really understand for ourselves what leads to real happiness, real peace. Lately, I've been reading a book called A Thousand Names for Joy by um, Byron Katie. It's actually quite a, it surprised me. um, What a great book it is. She says, Believing that what you want equals what's best for you is a dead end. It makes the mind stiff, inflexible, caught in a picture of reality rather than open to the wisdom of the way of it. What is immovable. What is, is immovable, and it's constantly changing. It flows like water. It has as many subtle, supple, beautiful forms as the mind can create, an infinity of forms. And inside them all, behind them all, it just waits. The heart doesn't move, it just waits. You don't have to listen to it, but until you do, you're going to hurt. And the heart says only one thing. What is, is and you return to the place you never actually moved from the heart the sweet center of the universe heart is just another name for the open mind there is nothing sweeter so how far can this freedom go this freedom of non-attachment of equanimity of understanding how to live with change, of non-resistance to reality as it is. In the shorter discourse on the destruction of craving, in response to a deva or an angelic being who asked the Buddha how, in brief, a Buddha is liberated, so I guess they liked the short version back then too, The Buddha described a mind that understood Anicca. He said, when a bhikkhu, so traditionally a bhikkhu is a monk, but we can include all of us because we're temporary uh, renunciates this week. When a bhikkhu has heard that nothing is worth adhering to, he or she directly knows everything. Whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant or painful, or neither unpleasant nor pleasant he abides contemplating impermanence in these feelings contemplating thus he does not cling to anything in this world when he does not cling he is not agitated when he is not agitated he personally attains nibbana so the buddha saying that this truth Of Anicca can take us all the way to complete freedom. The importance of understanding change and making peace with change and developing equanimity is also reflected in the Buddha's reported last words. His last teaching pointed to understanding Anicca as a path to liberation. He said... All conditioned things arise and pass away. Work out your liberation with diligence. Let's sit for a minute. All conditioned things arise and pass away. Work out your liberation with diligence.